The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work can change in the future. We're wrapping up season five of the show today, and I want to look at a concept I've long been a fan of, psychological safety. It's an idea pioneered by the Harvard Business School professor, Amy Edmondson, my first guest today. Psychological safety, it's not about being nice. It's the idea that you aren't going to be embarrassed, shamed, or even punished for speaking up with your questions, concerns, or mistakes on the job. It's really important in today's workforce, says Amy Edmondson, and psychologically safe teams get things done and move big ideas forward. Later in the show, we'll hear from Christopher Yates, Chief Talent Officer at Ford Motor Company, on why psychological safety is important in his organization and how he helps create teams that feel more psychologically safe. But first, here's my conversation with Amy Edmondson. Um, You write... I had long been interested in the idea of learning from mistakes for achieving excellence. And um, this was when you were a doctoral student. Hmm. And I'm curious, why were, why were you interested in this as a young person? Well, I had read a lot of books on this topic. I mean, the, there's a fundamental truth, which is to err as human, right? We will make mistakes, right? like it or not. Now, we can all do our very best to minimize certain kinds of mistakes and to prevent certain kinds of mistakes, but we have to learn how to be comfortable with ourselves in terms of our fallibility. We are fallible human beings. That's a given. The only question is, can you become comfortable with that? Is it okay? Right? And, and certainly your whole topic you know, is very much about the challenge here, that it's not always okay. So I was interested in this because early on, I really took to heart the notion that we're living in a fast-paced world, a a world that keeps changing, the knowledge explosion. Mm. We can't just keep doing what made us successful in the past, we all of us have to be lifelong learners, right? That just became sort of something very interesting to me. And and then when you start thinking about what does it take to be a lifelong learner, you have to be willing to look at your failures. You have to be look, willing to look at mistakes so that you can learn from them and do better next time. Did you grow up in a family where it was okay to make mistakes? <sighs> not, not really. Huh. It's funny. I grew up in a family that that cared very much about hard work, but probably even more central was caring about other people. Right? So there was a strong message of you're here to 
help others, to make the world a better place. So, so achievement is kind of a mixed bag. It can't be selfish achievement, if you know what I mean. It, it has to be the sort of achievement that alters things in a, in a, in a useful way uh, for, for others. But mistakes, um, no, I, I would say mistakes, especially of the um, sort of interpersonal or caring kind, right? Of, of the, the, a mistake, anything, any kind of mistake that's related to being selfish or self-interested was, was not tolerated very well. Oh, that's interesting. But along the way, where did it, did you have an experience though with, with a teacher or a leader, someone who showed you that making mistakes was an okay thing? How did you, how did you even get the idea into your head to explore it? Well, it, it's funny because it doesn't seem, but maybe it's because I've had it for so very long. It doesn't seem that unusual to have, to have that idea. But I suppose the, the right answer to that question is yes, Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> so I worked oh. right out of college. I worked for Buckminster Fuller, who was, you know, a great visionary thinker about spaceship Earth and how do we use our, our minds and our ingenuity to keep making the world a better place. And he was, he was an inventor. He was a, a designer. He was a, an educator. And one of the things he talked a lot about and one of the things he wrote about was, um, was mistakes as, as a just wonderful, important source of learning. I see. It's funny because because when I read about about you and and when I when I read all the sort of mistake theory and when I hear my kids actually coming home from elementary school and saying things like mistakes are how your brain grows, <laughs> that that was not how I I was raised that to be filled with shame right. if you made a mistake. For me, and I think for a lot of people, maybe even a, a sure. generation, whatever, it was like, no, you do not admit it. And so to me, it does feel kind of radical. I guess you're right. I guess you're right. And especially Buckminster Fuller was born in 1895. So wow. uh, he grew up in a very different world uh, than the world I grew up in or you grew up in. Um, but it seemed obvious to him. Um, and because he had some he had some challenges as a child. He was um, uh, virtually blind. Um, he was so he was cross-eyed and so far-sighted that he just couldn't make sense of anything. It was just a blur. And then when he was about five years old, he got he got glasses and was just overwhelmed by appreciation for what he saw. Right for how beautiful and amazing the world was, and bugs and snakes and. Everything else, so he had a he had a wonder uh, that he never stopped having. I would I would say, and uh, and maybe a capacity for not just self forgiveness, but but other forgiveness. Yeah, gosh, that's beautiful. Um, so psychological safety. The term is really a household name, right? I mean, it's a, it's a reference point for so many of us, even outside management and leadership culture. I think that's true. And it just is, it stuns me. Um, and of course, with, <laughs> with that widespread attention, also we find misconceptions. So I'm happy to... Tell us, what is it so, not? <laughs> so it's not being nice. Um, it's not safe space. It's not a trigger-free environment. You know, it's not a guarantee that everything you do will get a round of applause. Right? So it's, and and I feel badly about the the term, which I didn't coin. Um, I certainly brought it to wide attention, but the the term was in the literature 
already and, and with the following observation that when you want to ch- do organizational change, people need to have psychological safety to take the risks, you know, the behavioral and, and, and risks they need to take to change. Like change is hard. Um, so I thought that was the right term to use for the thing I had discovered. But what it is is a sense of permission for candor. What it is is the belief that you can be yourself. You can speak up, ask for help, disagree with an idea, admit a mistake, and you won't be you know, rejected or, 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 or punished in, in some way. So it's that kind of an environment. It's an environment where your focus is on the task or on other people, not on yourself, not on how do I look? How am I coming across? Am I okay? You know, will I get rejected? So it's an environment that's <laughs> relatively free of those worries. You know, it's the opposite of social anxiety. It's the opposite of fear, or at least social fear, which I think is maybe the same thing. Um, and it's really important for teamwork and knowledge-related work of any kind that forces us to take risks and get some things wrong on the way to discovery and, and advances. So data data shows that most most teams are not great at psychological safety. And yet, I think the reason why it has become such a household name is that we all kind of yearn for it, right? It's, right? it's what we want. Why, as humans, is it such a powerful <laughs> concept to us? Well, you know, I, I because I think we want to contribute. We want to be unencumbered by, you know, what do people think of me, right? It's such an unhealthy thing to be tied up in knots about, you know, how do I look? How, what do people think of me versus the more the healthier and I would say more joyful state of being, wow, this is like a really interesting project and I'm glad to be a part of it and I feel it matters. Right? That's what we want. I think we want to make a contribution. We want to be among people whom we like and respect and we don't want to feel that alone, that anxiety, that, that, um, you know, that worry that we might be rejected. So, so psychological safety is something that occurs at the group level not between individuals. Is that correct? And, and why? Well, yes and no. Okay. Um, so empirically, the data suggest um, that in, in people who work together, so a team, a work team, or a unit, or a branch, um, tend to have relatively similar levels of psychological safety, in part because of local management effects. So that, but that doesn't mean we're all exactly the same. It means that there tends to be an interpersonal climate around here that we can all detect. Now, there will be some exceptions, right? There will be people who are just very high on social anxiety, so high that they'll just, they're just not comfortable anywhere. Um, but by and large, empirically, what we see is differences across teams and relatively high similarity within teams. But, but psychological safety also describes a dyad, right? A, a two-person Group is a group, right? So if, if I might or might not have a sense of psychological safety with my boss. And is psychological safety the same thing as trust? Not exactly. I would say psychological safety is a composite of trust and respect, but technically it describes the climate. It doesn't describe, whereas trust describes my expectations about some other, 
another person, a company, but let's say we'll keep it to people, right? So I, I trust you, right? I don't think you will do something um, that's not in, you know, that, that hurts me. Um, or I, I think you will follow through on what you said you would do. That's trust. Where I'm focused on you and my expectations about you. Whereas psychological safety is when there is a fair amount of trust among people and, and, and generally respect as well, I feel okay about me and what I can do here. Is psychological safety different, more complicated, whatever, for people who are maybe more anxious, who have some social anxiety? What has your experience shown? Well, almost by definition, um, yes. So what I have, I have always said that psychological safety is not an individual difference variable, right? Because it, again, it's this emergent climate in a group. But there are a couple of individual differences, um, and this would certainly be one that that will shape, right? That will that will have an impact on your capacity to be aware that this is actually a very psychologically safe team. Right? We're we're eager to hear from you. We value and respect your voice, um, but you might be less a someone with high social anxiety may be less able to detect the actual psychological safety that's present. Yeah. Because it's a habit. Exactly. So what is a team or a manager to do? I think it's all about coaching yourself or maybe being coached by others to get comfortable with the discomfort, right? to, to, to sort of change your mind about the, the idea that it's supposed to be different than it is, right? That, that, that the world is somehow supposed to be predictable and totally um, reliable, that, you know, that, that everything you do will yield approval. I, I mean, that's a kind of desire we, with a child, the baby has, right? And, and you know, wants to have that, um, you know, that sort of guarantee that I'll be safe and loved. And, and I'm fairly sure, this is, of course, not my my area of expertise, but that people can be helped. People can learn to have a little bit of a lighter heart about these challenges. That, 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 you know, to sort of shift from, you know, the world is, you know, it's, it's a really dangerous place, you know, f for me. Um, no one will, no one will you know, include me or respect me to not at all. No, it's a place where we're all struggling together to get important things done. You know, it's so funny. When I was reading one of your sort of famous case studies about Pixar, I thought this environment could be an environment where healing happens. Yeah. That yeah. someone who was sort of socially anxious and always expected to be sort of yelled at could go into one of these brain trusts, is that what they were called? Could, yes. And, and yes. learn that like, yeah. they weren't going to be shamed. Can, can you talk about that? Is that Sure. So, you know, the brain trust is a, it's a structure. It's a ritual that um, occurs at some regular intervals during the production of a movie, right? And these are high-tech, creative productions. And of course, Pixar has famously been successful, right? It's, oh, yeah. It's, its products are not only commercially successful, they're critically successful. And that, they would argue, comes from being willing to 
tear it apart along the way, being willing to like critique critique the project when it's when it's boring or unconvincing or you know in a, a ugly or you know in, in any way not living up to the potential and realize you're not going to get there right you're not going to get to a totally delightful wonderful movie if you're not willing to hear and really entertain criticism along the way but that's not easy for human beings to offer because again we want to be we want to be liked we intuitively don't want to tell someone their baby is ugly. And right, And this is their baby. I mean, I would imagine this is their these, baby. These Make no mistake. are artists. Yes. Right. They are artists. And so what do you do? Like, how do you make it easier? How do you lower the threshold for honesty? And it turns out, you, you know, the structure helps, but the structure comes with guidelines or ground rules. And they are things like you're criticizing the project, not the person, right? You want to be very thoughtful and careful about, you know, you, you created this stupid scene, right? It's not that. It's like, I I feel bored when I watch this scene, or I don't think the curly hair looks credible, or whatever. I'm, I'm criticizing the substance. And when we're in the brain trust, we're all peers, right? We, 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 have to do this odd thing of leaving our titles outside the door. Um, now, you might think that's not really doable, but it is, right? If you, if you sort of decide, I'm going to buy in to these particular sets of rules, it works. And, and, a, and an important rule, I would argue, is that the filmmaker gets the final say, right? Nobody in that room is telling him or her what to do. They're you can't pull rank. Feedback. You can't pull rank. Yeah, even if you're the head of the studio, if you're CEO of the company, you can't say you must do this. Um, you can share your, you know, worry about what you see, um, but it's up to them uh, to to take it to take it forward. So, what are the lessons there for someone who is running maybe a small business? You know, that's not Pixar. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I think there are two. So one. Um, I think this works in part because everybody has already bought into what they do as creative and challenging, right? And it's and it's particularly challenging because it requires storytellers and artists and computer scientists, you know, to team up, and those aren't natural <laughs> natural partners. And so so there's a kind of um, humility about how hard this is, you know, how hard it is to get, there's so many bad movies, right? Like how hard it is to get one that sings. And so with that in mind, it's like, okay, because of that and because of our desire to make great films, we have to do this painful thing, right? So so there's a, there's a sort of stage setting that people are, are all aware of. And then the, the beauty of the brain trust is that, that it's a structure that by its design lowers the threshold for speaking up. Right? It's, it, it would be, I think you'd feel a little awkward being there and not opening your mouth, right? Because then it's like, why were you there? It, it's, it, 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 as a structure, communicates that your voice is needed here. So it's, it lowers, it lowers, you know, in most meetings, most of us can easily say, mm, I think maybe I'll just, you know, wait and see. Um, I'll see what the boss is saying. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll weigh the pros and the cons, but in a in a well structured situation. Now, it doesn't have to be a brain trust, or if you're running a, a company that's not Pixar and you want to apply some of these principles, 
the most simple, not easy, but the most simple thing to do is just ask good questions. You know, ask really good questions and, and, and use people's name, right? Sort of, you know, Amy, what, what do you think uh, about this project? What, what, what sense do you make of these data from the customers or what ha- whatever? It's very awkward for me, Amy, to not answer if you've asked me a direct question. Whereas it's never awkward for me to just be silent in normal meetings, right? It's, it's easy, right? It's, I'm not imposing. I'm, I'm, I'm a good team member. I'm watching to see what's happening. But I'm, um, but so you can flip the calculus upside down simply with a question. Let's talk a little bit about um, the sort of role of vulnerability. I, I have a I have a question. Like in all your travels, you've probably worked with thousands of people on these issues at this point. Have you ever seen someone who has sort of said like? I have a real fear of being seen negatively. I have a fear of shame or I have social anxiety and therefore I need a little something different. Or have you ever seen someone who's who's been aware and asked for what they need? Not not really in so many yeah. words. Um but maybe that's not necessary. No. But but I I think um it's back to being comfortable being uncomfortable. Or with our, you know, with being uncomfortable, and you know, I, I think people are getting a little better at asking for what they need. Um, but it's the 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 thing I always want to keep in mind is I actually think you're happier. One is happier when one is other focused or other oriented. So that in in a funny way, the best way to get over your social anxiety is not to get all your needs met and no longer feel vulnerable, which probably will never happen, but rather to get so interested in other people or the project or the possibility that we have here to you know, make a difference that you forget about yourself a little bit. I could not agree more. And, you know, on one of my favorite episodes of this show, a psychologist, Alice Boyes, talked about the narcissism of anxiety. And um, how crucial it is in your own journey to sort of like step away from the anxiety and be like, shut up. This is not all about me. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's not – you're not the center of the universe. Um, and it's a huge um, gift to realize that. I mean the burden of being the center of the universe is very great. Right? But if the burden of being a participant in the universe with other participants in the universe is – much, much lower. And to do good work because we're motivated by that. Right. I think we want to feel we matter. And the best way to feel you matter is to team up with other people to get good stuff done. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. 
On my podcast Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What is the role of perspective taking in creating a psychologically safe environment? And, and, and do you have any tips on how people can sort of practice perspective taking? <laughs> I think the role of perspective taking in creating a psychologically safe environment is very high right? yeah. because it's the it's the it's more, it's the cognitive side of it it's the capacity to stop and imagine and, and it shouldn't be that hard but imagine what is um, what it would be like to be in that other person's shoes and I, I I do think it has to come with curiosity or right? don't assume you know so good perspective taking practices are first to be willing to to try right. I need to understand better where you're coming from and to then show show that you heard it, they think you heard it, you're, you are certainly in, in the act of doing that creating more psychological safety for them and very possibly for yourself. But it is a practice to practice, right? And, and, and I think the art of being a good team and having good conversations requires us to practice perspective taking in an environment that we want to be psychologically safe and that we create it as more psychologically safe by the act of, of perspective taking. And it sounds like it also comes back to asking good questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and those good questions are not yes-no questions and they're not leading questions or rhetorical questions. They're, they're what questions. What do you see here? What are we missing? How might we think about this differently? And then also sort of maybe allowing for a little bit of silence and feeling comfortable with that. Yes. Yes. Yep. Don't jump too fast to fill in the, the vacuum. Um, vulnerability. Vulnerability is something that I, I think people are becoming more comfortable with in a workplace setting. Um, mm. You've done work uh, with executives to help them see that like if they're a little bit of vulnerable, they don't get dinged. <laughs> Um, can you talk about that a little? Well, I like to say you are vulnerable. That's just a <laughs> fact. It, the only the only question is whether you're willing to admit yeah. it and do your job anyway, right? Because you're you're vulnerable to things in the outside world. You're vulnerable to how your colleagues might react. We are all vulnerable, meaning we are at risk of being hurt, right? That's that's just that's just a fact. That's a given, right? So. Getting more comfortable with that, which is in a sense, allows us to be more honest about that and I think have even a better, more, more, more humor about it, right? It's just um, we're fallible human beings living and working among other fallible human beings and um, we better just be okay with that because that's never going to go away as a fact. 
My last question, I, I want to zoom out to the group level and also think about where we are now. One of your, your matrix, you have a matrix of organizations and there's a zone mm. called the anxiety zone. And <laughs> my experience working with a lot of groups right now as they're heading into a hybrid environment is that they have been working mm. in an anxiety zone, right? Like high pressure, high output, low psychological safety is that right. it? can can you right. define the anxiety zone and then maybe offer like one way that a manager listening to this could say i'm going to take this step to try to diffuse the anxiety zone oh that's great yes i i i want to clarify I yes i may have defined it wrong that the ang- no 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 <laughs> you did great um it but i want to say that the anxiety zone like to be even more precise it's the interpersonal yes. anxiety zone because I actually think there is productive anxiety, right? For example, we should be anxious about exposure to the to the virus, right? We we that's that's a, a scientifically a good idea to be anxious yes. about that. Um, we should be anxious and can be anxious about um, missing a deadline or or not doing mm-hmm. well on the test, right? That that kind of anxiety that that should lead to a productive behavior of let's study or let's do our work and not miss the deadline. So so being, you know, being anxious about um, uh, things that are truly um, problematic and under our control is a healthy yes. thing. But interpersonal anxiety is rarely healthy. It's It's a kind of, it keeps us in a little cage of our own making where we are we feel unable to express ourselves or to get the help we need. So in the two-by-two, I have psychological safety on the vertical axis and sort of performance standards on the horizontal axis. And where performance standards or performance expectations, or at least I see them that way, are really high, but I don't have psychological safety, then I'm in the interpersonal anxiety zone. And I would argue that's a very dangerous place to be in – in especially in high risk settings like hospitals or 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 manufacturing plants where you better be willing to ask for help when you don't know how to do something or or speak up to offer an idea that might make things better right it's it's really going to be detrimental to performance if people are unwilling to share their knowledge their concerns um, and so forth and so the the trick for any manager, any people manager, is to is to recognize the, the possible existence, right? The, the high probability, in fact, that your team is in the interpersonal anxiety zone, and say, how do I get them into the learning zone, or you could also call it the high performance zone. And the answer lies in increasing the expectations and permission for candor, and and you do that, I think. In, in three basic ways, right? By, by explaining and reminding how and why the work we do is so dependent on everyone's input, right? That it's just factually, um, we need you. Uh, there's uncertainty, there's interdependence, right? That we're fast moving, right? We need, you know, we, we, like speaking up quickly about something that's not working is so much more useful than waiting to see what happens, right? We need we need that speed, right? So whatever it is, you're sort of explaining why it's a genuine statement that your voice is valued around here. Second, as we talked about, asking good questions, like literally inviting 
inviting your thoughts, inviting them through a question or inviting them through a, a, a team structure like the brain trust. And then finally, mastering the art of the productive response as a, as a leader. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, when people are honest and outspoken, there will be things that you hear that you don't like. Um, you know, bad news. Nobody likes bad news. Um, gotta, we don't want to shoot the messenger. Instead, we want to always have the following two ingredients in our how we respond. Appreciation and forward-looking. Right? So thank you for coming. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you for that idea. Um, and then forward-looking, like where do we go from here? Not how the heck did that happen, right? That's important. It's a, that's important work to do later. But the initial response, if we really want people to, to sort of move out of the anxiety zone and into the, into the learning zone, we need to keep reinforcing that good behavior of, of candor, of honesty. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. What a joy it's been to talk with you. To see how psychological safety can really play out in practice in an organization, I spoke with Christopher Yates, the Chief Talent Officer at Ford. Um, so Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about your job now and what you do every day? I'm currently at uh, Ford Motor Company. Uh, my role right now, I'm the Chief Talent Officer. And that's looking after a lot of the people strategy um, for Ford. I trained originally as an industrial psychologist, and I've worked at a number of organizations. The, the things that I've touched and continue to touch today uh, would be around organizational design, um, learning and development, succession, creating culture. So a number of things. And um, as I've moved through organizations, uh, the exact remit has changed several times depending on the need of, the, of that unique organization. I wanted to talk to you. Our, our mutual friend Chris Rainey um, from HR Leaders said, "Oh, you have to talk. You have to talk to Chris Yates about psychological safety because I mentioned that I wanted to do an episode about psychological safety right now. It has become such a such a prominent term. I don't know. Have you noticed that that the concept of psychological safety is sort of like everywhere now? Why do you think that is? It is actually. <laughs> I'd agree with you." <laughs> I think because increasingly we've, you know, I think we've learned more about the how the brain works. So mm. um, let me go back probably about seven years ago, people started to talk much more uh, from the neuroscience mm -hmm. and then the application of that science to realize that humans don't perform best in a threat state. And, and I think even that might have challenged some of the the ways that we, we, we thought about leadership and, and things before. So we now know that the brain uh, doesn't operate well in a threat state, that um, the, the damage is done uh, to humans and individuals uh, when in a stress state, and actually to get the clearest thinking. If you think about what are we paying a premium for, mm -hmm. uh, for people in the market um, today, it's specialism and it's increasingly, you know, it's a bit blunt, uh, brain's not brawn. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it, yeah, and, and, and if we're focused on, uh, on the brain, uh, in a big way. Uh, we know that this is kind of the, the seed of, of success um, in many ways. And we, and we don't see uh, the best thinking from individuals when uh, people operate in a threat state. Um, I remember going through, you know, sort of my first psychology classes, uh, learning about fight, flight, fright, 
syndrome, that basic understanding that um, as human beings, we have not evolved, you know, significantly beyond being scared of the the tiger or the particular bear and that we're still wired very much uh, for that um, make absolute sense. Uh, you know, I, I think there's this veneer of civilization that we have uh, <laughs> that uh, we are more advanced uh, than our bodies that we're able to control, uh, but that we see threat in, in absolutely everything. And I, I remember talking about this several years ago, actually, when I was uh, working in banking and trying to explain to an executive that a brand that he was wearing provokes a chemical reaction in somebody. And in some cases, a brand can provoke uh, a threat, a judgment. What and was that therefore, brand? I must know. <laughs> it was a football brand. It was, a, it was. He had a particular coffee mug on his desk. And I won't go into the readers, but that particular football uh, brand was associated with a group of fans um, who had neo-Nazi connections. And so I was pointing out to him that, hey, if you walk around with this mug in the organization, you're getting judged because of an association with a particular brand. And for some people, encountering you with a particular coffee mug um, means that their stomach is going to react in a particular way. Blood is going to be diverted <laughs> away and they're going to maybe stutter in your promise or have a double take all because of an image that you carry uh, with you. And the intentionality to say to him, how do you actually then, you know, be much more intentional about your space as, you know, the, the leading executive of, of a corporation so that you're getting the best from people in the small amount of time that they interface with you. So something as small as that and then taking that into all of the ways that we spend our time in terms of, uh, you know, meetings, interactions, and how do we make those the most effective that they can be? Wow. So you were literally saying to that leader, you are you are being the lion here and the antelope in the office are having the fight or flight flight probably response when they see you prowling around with your mug. Yes, <laughs> essentially, yes. <laughs> but, 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 but you see, the, the, the beauty of that to your question is that it's possible to translate uh, for him using um, the neuroscience of that explanation and, and to explain that you've got to be very intentional because of the power dynamic that you create by being the senior executive in the organization. And, uh, you know, you, you must be intentional uh, to kind of create the safety for the kinds of dialogues uh, that you want. Well, all right, let's put you on the hot seat since this is your job. I mean, everyone wants a psychologically safe team. Nobody wants a team that feels scared. When you come into a new situation, what are the cues? What do you look at first? And then what are the steps that you take to try to address perhaps a lack of psychological safety in a team? There was a situation recently uh, for me, actually. So I've visited um, a particular site. And there are things that uh, you look for in terms of the formality um, of how people are addressing you, the eye contact uh, that people are giving you, the, the space distance, how are you greeted, um, the, you know, all of the normal visual cues and being attuned to that mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening. And as a leader, you have an opportunity to absolutely set the tone. Don't call me Mr. Yates, call me Chris. Small, small things in terms of how are we going to speak? Where do you sit? Um, mm -hmm. uh, do you sit at the top of the table or do you sit in a, in a random chair? Because sometimes the intentionality of choosing not to step into the, say, typical executive role, the typical manager role, and maybe breaking the 
that sort of trips the the the, the senses of the, of the team to say, oh, something is different here. Um, perhaps uh, telling, uh, using humor, um, asking about family, uh, noticing something, and, and maybe taking the time to engage and learn something about that individual. Uh, one of the practices um, that we've been doing here. Uh, I know many other organizations and professions use as well, is an intentional check-in. What's happening for you today? Uh, tell me what's distracting you. How, how are you feeling uh, before we get down to what the work actually is? And we, and we know that there's a number of techniques like that which can lead to people being more present, uh, to feeling heard, to feeling being seen. And that creates a very different type of discussion. And I think allowing people to breathe and relax into the situation. Unfortunately, um, we always, don't always take the time um, to do that, um, walking into situations. I think at the macro sense of the organization, uh, what I've tried to do in the last couple of roles is think intentionally about what are the habits mm. um, that we can teach leaders uh, to be able to do some of those things. And the, the intentional check-in, is one of them, creating the spice for another. Another one is, is through education um, to teach people to say when you realize that moment of um, fear gripping, stomach crunching uh, <laughs> moment happen, realize that and pause, genuinely pause. Don't react in the moment of heat. Don't react in the moment of anger, confusion, fear, because you're allowing a biological response. Uh, but instead, engage your brain teach a breathing technique, you know, take a few deep breaths um, and do something we've called the balcony view. So sort of sit on the balcony, observe what's really happening, and then respond with choice in the moment, um, as opposed to responding um, because of your um, anatomical <laughs> you know, uh, direction that you're giving. So trying to build small habits um, that people can practice every day, that uh, become uh, you know that become part of how uh, new routines are built um, seems to be successful. So the so the the balcony view is that when mm. you are feeling unsafe, when you are feeling scared, or when you are a manager and you realize that you are making someone scared. I think both, mm. uh, to be honest. But 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 I think actually for managers, especially because you know there's so much research to show that. Managers control 70, 80% of the employees' experience coming through. Yeah. It's important when you're reacting in particular that you realize that the whole room is watching you, that you have a disproportionate impact. And for you to maintain an element of self-control, um, mm. your job is to get the best out of the team around you, to, uh, to, be, to make an effective team, an effective organization. And so you have a choice to allow yourself to be controlled by the, you know, the, the forces within, <laughs> as it were, um, or to in, with intentionality, uh, choose to be a better leader. And, and you have that choice every single moment. So the, to say, well, they made me mad. Um, they were late. Um, uh, right. You know, the presentation was awful. That's, that, that, that's, that's a choice that you have as an individual to choose to react um, that way or to, um, or to breathe. And, uh, wow. and to be a better human. It's so funny because you just you just made me think about my kids. You know, as parents, we often will say, oh, my, they're driving me crazy. I yelled at them because they were just driving me crazy. And of course, you know, we feel that way at work sometimes, too, that everyone is just driving us mad and that we just need to shut them down because it's how other people make us feel. 
Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. So my kids always tease me that I practice these habits with them. As well. <laughs> but I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's, it's absolutely uh, that way. So, you know, that piece of with your children, when you say, I'm just going to walk out of the room, take some fresh air for a moment and, uh, uh, and, and walk away. And in, in, it's been interesting, you know, as, as we think about this, this environment, I, I can't see you right now. Yes. Uh, in terms of being in, in the space right in front of me, uh, in, in the same room. But it's been interesting as we work towards this uh, virtual environment. It's in many ways more intimate um, than the office setting. Um, and at times, I've encouraged people in a moment to say, we just need to break right now. And I suggest everybody just walks outside and takes a breath of fresh air, pauses for a second, and then we come back. Um and that it's possible to do some of those things, go get a glass of water, do, you know, do, do something uh, that maybe we didn't feel as much permission doing um, when we well, were we in the thought, office environment. Well, we thought it was unprofessional, right? Exactly, un- yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to be fascinating in terms of how we build new permissions, uh, mm. new habits uh, with better information that maybe we weren't able to do in the traditional office setting. I love that. Um, so I was listening to a fascinating podcast you were doing, and, and and you were saying that one of the things that you feel, and maybe it's your psychology training, that oftentimes walking into a corporate meeting room is like walking into a room full of actors. That that we who come into business are often trained to play parts, and perhaps that becomes easy after a while. I, I'd love to hear what you meant by that and to dig in a little bit about how how teams need to really think about who they're being at work and who they're showing up as. Yeah, we, we get trained from, uh, from, from entering into the organization to playing a particular character mm-hmm. in the role by necessity, almost, because it's safer. The analogy I sometimes use in coaching is, um, is that of the old, uh, so the, the old royal courts of Europe, or maybe courts of everywhere, Mm-hmm. that there would always be um, factions, barons, kings, um, uh, and attendants. And if you think about that scenario as, as a caricature, almost, um, you know your place in the yeah. ranking in the court of who can talk to who, um, whose who's faction you're in, uh, what is the power struggle of the day, what is the mood of the king, um, etc. You've, so you've just described a lot that, of teams, actually. Exactly. And so Sorry, nothing's keep, changed. Keep going, so, keep going. <laughs> so nothing's changed. And, and so wh- why did you know those things? Because it was important not to displease the king on the wrong day it was, or, mm. or, or the queen or to, to be loyal to your baron um, coming in and, and to do your tutelage um, in, a, in a particular house. And so um, these power constraints that have been there for you know, a couple of thousand years, if not more, in society still have just been transferred into that um, office environment and we have to be very intentional to break the patterns or brave and, and to think again it, with all of the knowledge that we have now how do we encourage people to take the risks outside of those pretty well-defined roles so these are not roles that are just recreated mm-hmm. um, w- within the modern organization they're roles that have been with us through all of society you know they were no doubt there in the the court of Genghis Khan <laughs> as well as uh, the Caesars as, as, as everybody else or or you know on, on, a, on a military ship etc these 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 patterns are increasingly there um, and at times you know when you need high agility 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there are times when it's absolutely appropriate to have very well-defined roles and to have a mass, perhaps you know what's seen as a more directive or command and control style. But it's about how do you develop the agility of an organization so that um, you can both move with urgency uh, when you need to, but also at the times where you need to have everyone operating at their best and to think through, how do I also uh, create, to use the cliche term, psychological safety? I, I was going to initially say the term, something that feels more like family, but also obviously not all families um, operate no. psychological safety themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so in a psychologically safe team, are, are, do we not have the queen bee, the court jester, the uh, gossip as currency? Does that stuff just not exist? I think less so. I, 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 I've operated in a few teams where I think we've genuinely had the ability to challenge. And for me, one of the measures that I use as a leader personally is that any member of the team is willing to challenge me um, about almost anything um, mm. in public. Mm. Um, and I know teams do this initially when you kind of, you've, uh, I'm, I'm trying to create a psychologically safe environment team and they will test you <laughs> to say, really, Chris, well, <laughs> so you know, I think you suck at X. <laughs> How are you going to react now? Because I've told you this in public. And I think you get over that. So that's absolutely a phase that I've seen. The team tests you to say, are you really being honest? I'm going to test you or, or one person is encouraged to test you often and we'll see if it's safe. And once you get over that phase, I think then you get to a point of really um, asking for expertise. And then I do think we go into roles, but it's much more based on what do you bring uh, as a contributor? Uh, so we know that Jerry is particularly good at seeing the, the this side of the problem. We know that um, Anita uh, is particularly skilled at uh, focusing on the detail. We know that Charlie uh, looks at uh, the big picture. So we can then invite in uh, or encourage that difference um, to be to be excellence um, and needed, and I, it, it takes a long journey. But and increasingly, it, I, I do see the role of the leader in committing to that and, and getting the team through that through that space of um, commitment, testing, and, and, and then being able to, to to work with the team. I want to close out by talking about anxiety in teams. Um, a lot of a lot of times on the show, we talk about about personal anxiety, about interpersonal anxiety with one other person. But I'm curious if you see teams that you think are anxious as a team. Um, and, and, and if so, how, how you can tell? I think something about the energy of the team mm. um, and how the team reacts to moments of crisis and individuals. I One particular thing comes to mind. I was on a call... Um, about two years ago in a meeting. And, you know, there's two things. I I think the use of this checking technique that I talked about gives you a sense of what's happening for everybody around the table on that particular day. And there was something in the tone of the voice because you've taken the time to know your team members that doesn't feel quite right. And so after the call, I I kind of deliberately sort of cancelled the next meeting and sort of called them directly and said, what's up? and uh, as much as I can say, there's something around personal intuition where you know that something is not quite uh, right for the individual in terms of how they're performing, their speech, their timing. And I think it's about having the curiosity and genuine care for the individual to pause and find out. 
because we're all, especially theaters, we're all living full lives, things are happening in our lives. And I do think it's the opportunity for leaders to demonstrate genuine empathy mm-hmm. in um, that moment um, that, again, builds that psychological safety because it's saying that the individual is there, that the leader is there for me <laughs> and <laughs> is not just concerned about my production, my work, my productivity. I think sometimes you can also see that people, there's one person on the team that's making everyone anxious or or there's something that's much bigger, right? That isn't even about one person. No, I, I was going to say, when we sense those things, I, 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 my advice is always, don't ignore it. <laughs> you know, go there. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of going there, my last question mm. for you is, if, 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 I'm, if I'm a manager listening to this and I think... I really want my team to feel safe around me, around each other. I don't have a talent officer. I work maybe at a small business. What is the first step I should take? There's a practice I actually picked up um, from West Point, uh, of all places, which is something that the military call a leader's intent. Um, on one sense, it's kind of writing the mission to say, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to want to do. The other aspect of a leader's intent is writing down the commitments to which you are going to hold yourself true and to which you're not going to break. It's it's kind of your promise as a leader to the team. Every new team, every new organization I've got into, it's one of the first things that I've done to say there are kind of 10 things I commit to. And if you see me failing on these things, I'm going to need your help to call me on these things. But here is the leader that I want to be. Here is the promise that I want to make and be very visible um, about these things and check in with people. Am I I living up to these 10 things? It could be as anything as, um, you know, uh, let's pick a a, a topical one. Um, uh, I believe we should learn from failure. Hmm. Yes. So I walk in as a new leader and say, I believe we should learn from failure because, um, you know, the greatest learnings come from our mistakes. And the first time that someone fails, everyone's watching. So how are you going to handle this? So if I, if I genuinely then throw a, a failure party, <laughs> some things that we do now, <laughs> and we say, uh, so, and I've done that. We've kind of we've got the ice cream or the champagne. And no. say, this is a wonderful. Yes, really, really. Because um, at, at one place, we, we actually got a, it was quite extravagant, uh, but it was a big failure. <laughs> we, we, actually, we actually got a DJ in. We actually threw a party no. with cake and everything and celebrated the hell out of the failure. Uh, because it was a great learning moment. I said, we're going to you know, wring every single learning we can out of this catastrophe <laughs> so that we never, ever happen again. And we're going to have a glass of wine. We're going to eat cake, champagne, because it created a psychologically safe environment to, for some people to say, look, I screwed up. I should have done da 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 So that first test of when the team fails and you decide to genuinely welcome it, they go, well, that, he seemed to be quite serious about this failure thing. And, and it's not, nobody wants to fail, but it does mean um, that in the moment of failure, uh, people learn. And that, that's, that's everything. As a leader, that's everything you want. Because uh, looking at that example, the place where we did go all out on the failure party, nothing close to it ever happened again. And mm. in fact, that, you know, the, the excellence of that team uh, directly came um, from the experience of that moment. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thanks to the team at HBR. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and truths. For you, our listeners, 
who ask me to cover certain items and keep the feedback coming, please do send me feedback. You can email me. You can uh, leave a message on LinkedIn for me or tweet me at Mora AM. And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Mora Aaron's Mealy. <laughs>